Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Jenny Smith on Overloaded. First, I wanted to encourage you to go to our website at booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by subject. For instance, select the science and medicine or psychology categories for episode number 100 with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Jenny Smith is a neuroscience expert and science storyteller who's just written her first solo book. It's called Overloaded, How Every Aspect of Your Life is Influenced by Your Brain Chemicals. Jenny, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. So this book looks to answer the question, how do our brains make us behave the way that we do by showing that it has more to do with chemicals than this popular idea of wiring? What do you mean by chemicals? So our brains are made of neurons. They're the kind of cells that send signals all around the brain. There are some other types of cell in there as well. But if you zoom in on the brain, you'll find that the neurons don't actually quite connect up with each other. There's tiny little gaps between them. And the way that a signal can get across that gap is mostly using chemicals. So the first neuron will send its message, and that's an electrical message. And then when it releases the, uh, when it reaches the end of that neuron, it releases chemicals. They travel across the little gap to the second neuron, and that sends its signal or doesn't send its signal, <laughs> depending on what chemicals we're talking about. So the wiring of the brain is really, really important. And when we talk about wiring, we mean these neurons and how they're connected. But actually, the chemicals are just as important for every message that's sent around our brain. And the chemicals can change really, really quickly. So the cells themselves can change in terms of their connections, but that takes a bit of time. So when I started looking into what really those kind of things that feel like the things that make us human, they're things that happen very quickly on, you know, our moods or our decisions feel like they they can change in a second or less. And actually, it's the chemicals that allow us to make those really, really quick changes to happen in our brain. And the first of the common aspects of our lives that you really explore in chapter two, which is titled Thanks for the Memories, is... Memory, of course. How do sea slugs, also known as sea hares, help us better understand the way in which neurons allow us to learn and remember? Yeah, so sea hares are this really weird-looking creature that just looks like a kind of blob with these things sticking out its head, which someone sometime thought looked a bit like hare ears, you know, like rabbit-type hare. Um <laughs> So they called it a sea hare. It doesn't look anything like a rabbit or a hare, but it has really big neurons um, and that's made it a lot easier to study than humans are. It's also obviously a lot simpler than a human and you can keep them in the lab, whereas you can't, you know, lock a human in a lab and do it well. I mean, you can a bit with undergrads, but they're a lot more work to look after. <laughs> um, so lots of learning and memory research has been done on these animals. And 
one of the reasons for that is that they have this really simple reflex. So if you poke a sea hare, it will pull in this little um, kind of tube that it has, which is called a siphon. Um, and that's important because it, it pumps water over their gills so they can breathe. But it's probably the most delicate part of their body. So if you poke it, it pulls it in a bit like a snail retreating into its shell to kind of keep it safe. But it turns out that if you repeatedly poke the sea hare, it eventually works out that what you're doing isn't actually a threat and it stops pulling in its siphon. So that is effectively a really simple form of learning. It's learnt that this signal doesn't actually mean danger. So using that really simple reflex, scientists have been able to look at what's actually happening in the individual cells in the sea hare and the chemicals that it's using. Um, and that's helped us understand the human brain um, kind of by going into a, a level lower in complexity. Consolidation is the storage of memories for the long term. How does this process play out in the brain? Yeah, so consolidation is um, this process that, as you say, it stores memories for the long term. And what we mean by that is that not everything that we experience every day is going to be remembered forever. So you take in a lot of information and then during the course of um, a few hours, sometimes even days or weeks, your brain kind of sifts through it and decides what it should store for the long term. Um, and long-term memories are stored in the surface layer of the brain, which is called the cortex. And what we think happens is that effectively the uh, hippocampus, which is a region deep inside the brain, activates various pathways of neurons in the cortex of the brain. So that would be, say, um, I don't know exactly how many, but let's say five neurons that are all connected together. So when you activate one, it activates the next and activates the next and activates the next. Now, to store a memory, what you have to do is make that pathway stronger. And this is where consolidation comes in. So if you activate the same pairs of neurons over and over again, they actually start to change. They release a chemical. It's usually, um, in this case, one called glutamate, which activates the next neuron, as I mentioned earlier. But if you repeatedly activate them, the first neuron will actually start making more glutamate. So that means that when the signal comes in, there's more of this chemical ready to be released. And the second neuron starts making more receptors, things that receive the chemical and send that signal and let it know that it's there so it can send its signal. So by repeatedly activating these neurons together, you're strengthening the connection between them. And that's what a memory effectively is. It's a combination of really strongly connected neurons in the cortex of the brain. Chapter three, which is titled Getting Motivated, deals for the first time with what may be the most popularly known chemical, and that is dopamine. But you state that dopamine is not the pleasure chemical that everybody thinks of it as. What is it then? Yeah, so this is a really interesting um, kind of example of how science moves on. And sometimes it takes popular culture a little while to catch up because people did used to think dopamine was a pleasure chemical because when you do something that is enjoyable, uh, dopamine is released in the brain. But some really really um, excellent scientists did some very clever work that showed that actually dopamine is more to do with the drive to go and get that pleasurable thing than it is with enjoying it. So if you reduce the levels of dopamine in the brain of a mouse, for example, it will stop working to get tasty food. 
it'll still eat the tasty food if you give it to it. And if you offer it tasty food versus bland food, it will go for the tasty food every time. But if you ask it to do something difficult in order to get that tasty food, it can't be bothered. So dopamine is there to give us the motivation to get the good thing rather than to help us enjoy it once we've got it. So dopamine is less responsible for the feelings of pleasure than two naturally occurring chemicals in our brain that are commonly linked to recreational drugs. What are they? Yes, so we have a bunch of different chemicals in our brain that are related to opioids. So drugs you might have heard of like heroin and morphine. So these are things like endorphins, uh, but there's actually a few different families of these in the brain. There's also a family of chemicals chemicals that are similar to cannabis or to the active ingredient in it. So we tend to call these endogenous as in our body produces them. So we'll talk about endogenous opioids and endogenous cannabinoids. So those are the the similarly related chemicals that our brain produces. And yes, we think that these are actually what give us the feelings of pleasure. Um, And there are actually tiny little areas of the brain that have been labelled hedonic hotspots where these chemicals seem to be released. And that does seem to be what gives us the feeling of pleasure. So chapter four is mood swings and scary things. In figuring (laughs) out why we feel fear, it required you to determine why we have emotions to begin with. So why do we emote, Jenny? Oh, I mean, it's a huge question. And some of the questions that I, I sort of tackle in this book end up being almost philosophical questions rather than neuroscience questions. But that's one of the things I love about um, this area is the kind of the overlap between neuroscience, psychology and philosophy and what makes us who we are. On the kind of simplest level, we think that we evolved emotions to tell us when we're doing something that's good for our survival or when we're doing something that's bad for our survival. So we see a bear it's very useful to have a very strong feeling of fear that tells us that we should do something about the fact that there is a bear there and that thing probably isn't going over and cuddling it (laughs) we should probably run away or try and fight it and also we should remember where we saw that bear and maybe not go there next time so we think that emotions arose to drive us to yeah avoid doing things that might kill us and then also to drive us towards using the dopamine system, things that are good for us. So food, uh, drinking water when you're thirsty, having sex, those are all things that are good for either your survival or the survival of our species. And they're generally things that make us feel good. So that's the kind of most basic level of why we have emotions, we think. This is going to be the most awkward question that I ask in this interview, but I have to ask it. Why do some people urinate themselves when they're scared? So again, this has a real evolutionary advantage. So when we're scared, we go into what's called fight or flight mode. So our body is preparing us to run away from the threat or to fight it. And to do that, it does a whole bunch of different things. So your heart starts beating faster and that pumps blood and oxygen to your muscles so that you can use them. You um, might go pale because your body directs blood away from the skin, which doesn't really need it, and again towards your muscles where you're going to fight. But your body also sort of turns off all its general processes so that it can spend all its energy getting you away from this threat. So it sort of stops digesting anything, um, and that 
can cause uh, issues. But also, if you're going to run away from something, you might be faster if you're a little bit lighter. So anything you can expel from the body at that point to make you lighter and therefore faster is going to be good. So we think that the response where people sometimes either wet themselves or even defecate is partly to do with the digestive system shutting down and partly to do with getting rid of excess weight so that you can run away. Makes a lot of sense. On the philosophy side of things within this chapter, you tackle the subject that I hadn't really considered before, and that is specifically moods, which is obviously in the title of the chapter. Are moods mostly an extended emotional response to something that happened or something different? Yeah, so it's quite an interesting one. There's there's a lot of things in psychology where we have these terms that we sort of feel like we know what they mean because we use them in everyday terminology. But actually, when you start looking at the science, you have to start defining these terms a bit better. So we define emotions as relatively short-lived things that are triggered by something that's happened in the environment. Uh, so you might feel angry because your partner left his socks on the floor. That's a, a relatively short-lived thing usually. But moods are these kind of longer lasting underlying things that can go on for days and weeks and months even sometimes. And they're a lot harder to study because you get can get someone into the lab and you can make them feel angry or sad or happy just by making them watch a TV show or read the news or something at the moment. But trying to put people in a mood, they're, they're much they're kind of, yeah, this harder to study, harder to kind of pin down thing. Um, they do link into each other. So if lots, if you're having lots of negative emotions, that will generally put you in a more negative mood. Unfortunately, when we're in a more negative mood, we also see tend to interpret things more negatively. So if you're feeling a bit down, you might notice the bad things that happen to you more than the good things. Um, and this is something that happens to people who are experiencing depression, that they end up in this low mood that then means they notice all the negatives and don't notice the positives, which then perpetuates the low mood. Well, it may not relate to depression. How might blood sugar affect the mood to the point of putting somebody into a bad one? So we think that um, there are some people where having low blood sugar can effectively trigger their fight or flight response because their bodies are thinking that they're in danger. And again, if we think about this evolutionarily, if you were a hunter gatherer and you haven't eaten for a while, that could be a dangerous situation because it might mean that there's no food around and you should really go and find some. Now, it doesn't tend to be a dangerous situation. It tends to just be lunch is a bit late. But we think that in some people it does trigger that response, that sort of stress response in the body, and that can make people a bit snappy. Um, and that's where this term hanger comes from. Um, again, this was an area that I looked into because I knew people would be interested in it because I... I know I experience it. My husband experiences it as well. But there isn't a huge amount of research yet on the, the neurochemistry of hanger, but, but it might be this kind of stress response thing. Why is serotonin an important chemical to know about? 
serotonin is one of the most interesting chemicals I think that I wrote about in the book because I started off knowing that it was involved in mood um, and we know this because of most many of the treatments for depression involve changing the levels of serotonin in the brain so you might have heard of SSRIs selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors they're the kind of first line treatment for depression um, and what they do is I mentioned earlier that when you um, when your neurons release chemicals, they have to travel across this little gap to get to the next uh, neuron and get it to send its signal. But there's also these little mechanisms that kind of suck it back up into the first neuron. And that means that it doesn't stay there forever. What serotonin reuptake inhibitors do is they block that mechanism. So any serotonin that's released sticks around for longer and can have more of an effect. And because this works in a lot of people, it was assumed that depression was caused by low levels of serotonin. But it turns out that when you actually look in more detail, that doesn't quite seem to explain it all. So, for example, it can take up to six weeks for SSRIs to start making people feel better, but they have their effect within an hour or so. So why would it take six weeks if it was just a case that they had low serotonin? Now we've boosted their serotonin levels people should feel better immediately. Um, so it turns out that we actually don't understand the mechanisms of depression anywhere near as well as you might think that we do. And there are loads of different hypotheses for why SSRIs have an effect um, and why they have this delayed effect. But none of it is that kind of direct mechanism. It's perhaps acting to activate different areas of the brain or to shut down other receptors that are then having a negative effect. There's all these different fascinating mechanisms, um, but it's not that one-to-one -one boost serotonin and you will automatically feel better. Well, this doesn't necessarily apply to depression. Are there some simple ways that a person can better control his or her emotions on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so there definitely are. We've talked a bit about stress and the stress response or the fight and flight response. And that's something that a lot of us experience a lot of the time. And particularly at the moment, we've all been under huge amounts of stress for nearly 18 months now. So finding ways to kind of damp down your stress response is really important. It evolved to protect us, but it evolved to protect us from short-lived threats like a bear or a lion. When we have threats that are ongoing and our stress response is dialed up all the time, it can have loads of different knock-on effects um, and they can have negative impacts on our health and also on our mood. So finding ways to reduce stress is really important. And there are a few ways that we know that you can do this. Um, so one is exercise is very good for lots of people to reduce their stress response. Another thing that's really important is connecting with other people, with other humans. So there's a chemical called oxytocin, which is released when we feel close to people. Um, so it's released when you hug someone. Um, it's released when you stroke a pet. Um, and even when you're just talking to someone that you care about on the phone or via Zoom. Um, and we know that oxytocin reduces the stress response. So that can be a really good way. And that's why we've known for a very long time that people can deal with very big stresses in their lives if they've got social support. Whereas if you don't have that support, stress hits you a lot harder. And we think that oxytocin is quite important for that. So yes, so exercise, connecting with other people, 
Um, there are other techniques, things like deep breathing techniques, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, those kinds of things. That kind of slowing your breathing down can also um, have an impact on reducing the stress response. But really, it's about kind of finding something that works for you. I'm glad you mentioned oxytocin. You talk about it in depth in Chapter 8, which is titled, You've Got the Love. Scientists have apparently <laughs> broken down romantic love into three categories, lust, attraction, and attachment. I guess I've always lumped lust and attraction into the same category. So what are the differences between the two, both behaviorally and chemically? So the reason we kind of tease those apart um, partly comes back to kind of the fact that scientists use a lot of animal studies. So we talk about lust as um, that kind of desire to have sex. And that is something that all animals experience. Um, so that means that we can study that drive by looking at what happens to cats when they are on heat or hamsters or that kind of thing. Attraction is much more specific to humans. So lust can be a kind of general feeling, whereas attraction is always specifically aimed at one person. And yes, they do go hand in hand. When you're attracted to someone, they often make you feel lustful, but they can also be separated slightly. Um, so we think that lust is driven a lot by what we think of as the sex hormones. So uh, testosterone, estrogen, those kinds of things. Humans are a very weird kind of animal because most animals, not all, but most sex is tied to reproduction. So a cat, for example, a female cat is only interested in sex when she is fertile. Um, the rest of the time, she doesn't want to know about uh, a male cat. Um, whereas humans, we don't have that. There can be, humans can be attracted to other humans who they can't reproduce with. We can be attracted when we're not fertile um, and we can have that sort of attraction and lust has been separated uh, from that. But we think that it's still the sex hormones that drive those kind of lustful feelings. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you most people find that they are most lustful in their teenage years and then that kind of deteriorates or wanes a little through adulthood because levels of those hormones are kind of skyrocketing when you are a teenager they're creating all the bodily changes that we experience and then they start to kind of level off into adulthood. Back to oxytocin for a second. Obviously, it's most commonly linked to newborn babies and their moms, but how is it connected to romantic love? We know this because of experiments done with this specific type of vole. Um, and there are, so voles are a uh, species of rodent and most rodents are um, not monogamous. They, they mate, they separate, the female raises the young, the male has nothing to do with them. But scientists discovered that prairie voles are completely different. They seem to bond for the long term. Um, once they've mated, that male and female will stay together. The male will help the female raise their young and they will live together. Um, and scientists discovered that these two chemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin, were really important for that. And they compared prairie voles with a very closely related animal called a montane vole. And they thought, well, now we know which chemicals are important. We could just give the montane vole some oxytocin and they'll suddenly turn monogamous. But it turned out that didn't work. 
So they discovered that this was because the prairie voles have receptors for these chemicals in the reward pathways of their brain. So those are the pathways that drive you to do something, that have that motivation, that have dopamine, um, and that give you those kind of good feelings when you do that. So oxytocin was being triggered when these animals were mating, because lots of it's released during mating, and that was driving them to stay with their partner. The montane voles didn't have receptors in their reward pathways, so they didn't respond to the chemical. And it turns out that humans have oxytocin receptors in our reward pathways as well. So we think that it's probably a similar system that drives us to form long-term bonds. And just to hammer home oxytocin's importance, why is it so crucial in a child's neurological development? So oxytocin is... um, one of the things that reduces the stress response and we know that if children undergo severe stress during early childhood they their brains can't develop properly so there's a lot of very difficult um, but very interesting research that came out of what are known as the Romanian orphanage studies mm-hmm. um, so it's a bit of a misnomer because a lot of these children actually did have parents, but they'd been convinced by the government that their children would be better off if they let them be raised by the state. But the number of children completely overwhelmed these um, orphanages and they experienced really severe neglect. They were at best kept alive, but they weren't held, they weren't talked to, they weren't played with, they didn't experience any of that kind of touch and interaction that is so important for babies. And the children experienced problems throughout their lives. Um, And there was some fascinating studies done where researchers followed children who were taken out of the orphanages at different times, at different ages. And it was discovered that different abilities could catch up depending on when the child was placed in a proper home. So if they were adopted before the age of two, they would look relatively normal neurologically by the time they were sort of 10 or 11. Um, But the longer the child had been neglected and not had that, that love, um, the the harder it was for them to catch up. Chapter 5 asks if sleep is the brain's greatest mystery. Why do we sleep, Jenny? Well, that is the big mystery. Um, it seems amazing to me that something that we spend a third of our life doing is so poorly understood. Um, we know a lot of different brain processes go on while we sleep. So one of them is memory storage, transferring memories from short-term temporary storage to long-term storage happens while we sleep. There's a process of kind of cleaning out the brain where waste products that were produced during the day get rinsed away. And that seems to be really important. Uh, We think sleep is important for emotions as well. I know I certainly find that if I haven't slept very well, I'm a lot more emotionally reactive. And that's a very common experience. So we think sleep is really important for regulating emotions. But we don't know which of these drove sleep. Like those are all things that happen while we sleep. But why we have to be unconscious for them to happen is it's a bit of a weird thing um, because you would think evolutionarily being unconscious for a large portion of 
time would be quite dangerous. So there must be a really good reason we have to be unconscious while these processes are going on. Um, but scientists just aren't fully sure why sleep evolved. But we find it in almost every animal that we've studied. And I think there was even a study that came out recently that said that jellyfish, which don't even have brains, show a kind of sleep-like state. Wow. So it's really old evolutionarily. But yeah, we don't quite know why. I'm guessing part of it is just to allow the body to fully rest. But all, a lot of it also has to do, at least in humans and probably some other animals as well, considering that other animals experience emotions, is the processing of memories and emotions through dreams. Yeah, so dreams we know even less about. <laughs> um, there are definitely theories that dreams are to do with processing emotions, as you say, or processing memories. Um but the studies haven't haven't sort of clarified that yet. So um, there's another theory that says that dreams are effectively screensavers for the brain. So the brain doesn't really like not having anything going on. Um, so it might just be that it's sort of creating something to keep you distracted while it, it does all its processes. So we we definitely know that sleep is vital and actually you if you don't sleep, you will die. It is it is completely vital to our survival. Um, and we know that, yeah, all these important processes are going on. But why, why we have to be unconscious for them? Why, if, if it was just about rest, why would, couldn't you just sort of lie down quietly in a dark room, but stay alert is, yeah, it's, it's quite a, quite a big question. Yeah, you know, maybe part of it has to do with how much energy the brain uses when you're awake. You would think so, but actually the brain uses almost as many calories per hour when you're asleep as when you're awake because it's doing all this processing. I think I worked it out in the book and it was the equivalent of a saving of like half a packet of crisps <laughs> through being asleep versus being awake. So that really doesn't seem like a good enough reason to me to be unconscious and at risk of being eaten by a bear to save yourself 100 calories or whatever it was. Regardless of whether I receive good sleep or not, I love coffee. I've currently made the poor decision to quit coffee for a couple of weeks. Bad Ooh, idea. How are you finding it? I mean, I've gotten over the physical withdrawals of caffeine, but I love coffee. I just love the taste. I love coffee in a variety of uh, manners, too. I love cold brews. I love just a drip coffee, mm -hmm. a pour over, Americano. There are so many different great ways to consume caffeine. But my question for you is how does caffeine wake us up and why does it become so much less effective over time? Yeah. So one of the ways that your brain knows how long you've been awake is through the buildup of a chemical called adenosine in a particular part of the brain. And this is produced as a byproduct of your brain kind of going about its business during the day. So levels build up and then when you sleep, it's cleared away. So the ideal is you wake up in the morning, all the adenosine's gone, you feel bright eyed and bushy tailed. Coffee, um, tricks your brain into thinking there's less adenosine than there actually is. It blocks the receptors. So say you didn't sleep very well, you wake up, there's still some adenosine left in your brain. You drink a cup of coffee, suddenly your brain thinks all the adenosine's gone, feels nice and wide awake. The problem is the brain doesn't really like you tricking it. So it tends to fight back. If you alter the levels of chemicals, it will try to regulate itself.
So if you are constantly blocking the adenosine receptors, it will do something to make you more sensitive to adenosine. Uh, so we don't know exactly what it does, but it could be that it starts producing more adenosine or maybe it starts making more receptors, but it makes you more sensitive to them. So that means now when you wake up in the morning, remember before we had a little bit of adenosine still left over when we wake up in the morning after a bad night, but now you're more sensitive to it because your body has got used to you putting caffeine in it. So when you wake up in the morning and haven't yet had your coffee, you feel worse than you would have done if you'd never drunk coffee. And actually, by the time you've been drinking coffee for a few weeks, all that cup does is it brings you back to your baseline. Hmm. It brings you back to feeling as alert as you would have felt if you'd never drunk coffee before at all. So actually, for long-term coffee users, caffeine doesn't really provide that much of a benefit. If you want to really be able to use it to get an alertness boost, you have to use it very sparingly. Um, so if you drank a cup of coffee once a week, it would definitely make you feel more alert. But if you drink it every day, your brain fights back and it, it doesn't have the same effect. And as you are discovering, when you stop drinking it, you then feel even worse. And you can have these kind of um, withdrawal effects. Headaches are really common. Have you been getting headaches? I had the headaches and the headache is really the big one for me. The interesting thing about quitting coffee, though, is that... After I've quit it for a couple of days, I start to experience really lucid dreams. I don't always remember my dreams, but after I quit coffee for usually about a month or two, I will remember my dreams in, in crazy vivid ways. So just a very another interesting byproduct of how the brain operates differently if you are consuming something like that on a daily basis versus uh, occasionally or not at all. And speaking of coffee, mm -hmm. coffees go great with pastries. Chapter 6 is called <laughs> Food for Thought. Chemically speaking, Jenny, why do we overeat? Oh, that's a big question. So as with everything in the brain, it's going to vary for different people. There are lots of different reasons that someone might eat more than they um, metabolically need. Um, for example, we know that your environment affects how much you eat. So we decide whether we're hungry based on cues from our stomach, um, chemicals released into our bloodstream that travel to our brain. But Hunger can also be triggered by seeing something that makes you think about food. Um, so we, our brains are very good at learning associations, learning links between things. So if previously you have seen uh, a coffee shop logo and then you've gone and eaten a delicious muffin, your brain will start learn that that logo signals there are muffins available. And over time, it can actually lead to you to crave or be driven to eat that thing when you see that logo, uh, whether or not you're hungry. Now, we now live in a world where food is everywhere and logos are everywhere. So that's one of the reasons that we think that many people eat um, more than they necessarily metabolically need. Other people eat because they're stressed. Um, so eating can make us feel good. If we're stressed um, one time and we eat some chocolate and we feel happy because chocolate is delicious and our brain goes, oh, yay, um, that's something that's good for our survival in evolutionary terms because it's got lots of fat and sugar. Um, 
then our brain learns that link between I was feeling bad, then I ate this thing and it made me feel better. So next time I feel bad, I'm going to eat this thing again. And then it can become a habit. So originally it was driven by uh, a kind of desire to make yourself feel better. But after a while, it can just become something that you do without even thinking about it. Um, and then that can become quite a difficult thing to break. Chapter nine is titled A Pain in the Brain. Does swearing help with pain or screaming loudly help with pain? And if so, why? Yes. So uh, we know that swearing does help reduce pain. Um, and there was a scientist called Richard Stevens, who I interviewed for the book, who has done loads of experiments on this. And what he does is he gets people to come to the lab and stick their hand in a bucket of iced water. Um, and that is unpleasant. And then after a while, it gets really quite painful. And then what he did was he asked one group to shout a swear word whilst keeping their hand in the bucket of water. And he asked the other group to think of a word that describes a table. And then they had to shout the table word in the same way that one would shout a swear word. And he found that the swearing group could keep their hand in the bucket of water for longer than the table group. So we know that it, it definitely seems to help. And he thinks that this is because swearing is something that is a little bit naughty. It's, it's not something you're supposed to do. So it triggers the stress response to some extent. Now, we've talked about the stress response as quite a negative thing um, throughout this interview. But actually, when it comes to pain, it can have some positive outcomes. So there have been examples of you know people who have broken a leg um, during a very extreme environment, say they're um, in a war zone or something, and then they've been able to walk on that broken leg for miles to get to safety. And what happens when you experience something like that is that your brain damps down the pain signals in order to get you to safety because it knows that at that point in time, the stress is telling it that there's something more important than your broken leg going on. So what Dr. Stevens thinks is that the swearing is triggering like a very mild version of this response and is telling your brain to damp down the pain in some way, whereas just sw shouting a normal word doesn't. And something that supports that is that he found that um, if you're the kind of person who swears all the time, then it doesn't work as well for you. Because for those people, swearing is just a kind of normal thing. So it doesn't have the same kind of frisson of naughtiness. Interesting. Last question, Jenny. What do you love most <laughs> about studying and or talking about the brain? I think I sort of love and hate its complexity. It's, <laughs> it's so so complicated. There's so many different factors going on. And it's not just within the brain. We also have to think about how society impacts what's going on inside our brains. And I find that fascinating. I've always been the sort of person who likes asking questions and kind of understanding how things work. And neuroscience and psychology allows us to try at least to understand how we work and how other people work. And I just find that fascinating. Um, and part of what I do is working with kids. And I just love, I love the questions that they ask. They ask the most brilliant questions about the brain and kind of getting them curious about how they work and how other people work as well. It's yeah, it's a really, really fascinating area.
that developing prefrontal cortex that allows them to be so naturally creative about things, right? <laughs> well, possibly. Certainly um, less self-conscious until they get to the teenage years, and then they get very self-conscious. <laughs> well put. Jenny, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this beautiful book. You're welcome. Bye. Join me next time when I speak with former jazz pianist and boxing manager Charles Farrell on Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.